Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, we are glad you're with us uh, this morning, this Sunday uh, after Easter Sunday. We are glad that uh, that you you uh, you came. Well, you know, we we concluded a series on great stories uh, on Easter Sunday. We talked about it for several weeks, and so we're starting a new series today. And our series is called Bold. Um, and you know, when I think about the characters with the best stories, are the characters who act. Boldly, You think about, again, great stories in your life, great movies, great books, great TV shows, whatever. They are bold. I mean, the heroes of these stories are bold, and they make bold decisions, and they live bold lives. I mean, you think about, you think about would you watch a movie, maybe a, a new Marvel movie of a new Marvel superhero called Ordinary Guy uh, who just struggles to get TurboTax to work right, right? Like, that's his whole story is trying to figure that out. No, you watch a movie for someone to act boldly. You think about the little romantic comedies or romantic movies that you want to watch. Even there, there's a hero in that movie, right? And, and there is somebody there who's acting boldly. They're chasing after the person that they care about, the person that they love, and, and they act boldly in some way. They, they make their love known to them in some way. I wouldn't know. I don't watch those movies. But anyway, there's, there's something there that's boldness. And I think about in real life, your heroes in real life are usually people who act boldly, who've done something bold. I think about this evangelist, this George Mueller, who took care of, of over 10,000 orphans. He started this orphanage, and he acted boldly. He trusted God boldly, and so he asked God to fund the orphanage. He never once went out and told anybody he needed money. He never once asked anybody for money. He said, God, would you provide the money? And God did. God just put it on people's hearts, and they showed up, and they paid for all of these children over all these years years. I mean, incredible. That's like, that's bold. I, I think about one of, uh, uh, one of my heroes uh, who I named my daughter after, John Piper. That's what my daughter's name, John. Uh, but anyway, my, uh, no, my daughter, Piper Grace, I think he's a bold person, right? Like he speaks boldly about the truth of God. That's something I've always loved and admired about him. You think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another great theologian who was killed by the Nazis. He, he was on his way to America to get away from the persecution of the Nazis. And instead, the Lord spoke to him and said, go back and you fight the Nazis. So he entered into a plot to kill Hitler and ultimately was captured and he was killed by the Nazis. But he lived a bold life. He's a hero. I think about people that I know, people in my day-to-day -day life who are heroes to me, who, who do bold things, take strangers into their home and care for them as if they were caring for the Lord or give incredibly generously and sacrificially to other people or, or make just these culturally incompatible decisions like pursuing purity and celibacy in a world that tells us that that is stupid and not worth our time. I mean, these are bold moves, and that's what makes these great characters. And, and what my point is that God wants you to live a bold life, and he wants me to live a bold life. And that's what he's called us to, not a boring story, not a boring life, but to be bold, right? The life he's called you, think about it. He said these words, if you want to follow me, then you take up your cross, deny yourself, 
and follow me, right? If you want to be my follower, you will deny yourself. That's a bold move. Self-denial is a bold move. Go into the world and make disciples, the world that hates you, and it's going to hate you because it hated me, and go make disciples. Go spread my word in a world that will hate you for it. That's a bold move. Like, turn the other cheek when someone slaps you. That's a bold move, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, love your enemies. All these other things. These are bold moves. And I think that God has called each and every one of us to live a bold life. He's called us to live a bold life. Now, there's a biblical narrative that for about 3,000 years has inspired countless followers of God to live bold lives. And that's what we're going to look at this week and the next few weeks uh, ahead of us. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 17. If you have a smartphone uh, and want to open a Bible app, you can do that, 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have a Bible app, just Google 1 Samuel 17. It'll pull up. Something will pull up, all right? So 1 Samuel 17 is where we're going to be. And this is a a narrative that you're probably really familiar with. And you say, well, you know, I I don't come to church often or whatever. You probably still know this one. Uh, And this is David and Goliath. And my prayer is that this morning and the next couple of days that, or the next couple of weeks that we we hear this story with, with fresh ears, fresh hearts. We're ready to hear the truth that God has for us here. Um, I'm telling you that as we walk through this, as I've walked through this, uh, there were times where I was just blown away at the things that God showed me, and I think he'll show you some of those same things too. So we're just going to walk through this story together. Uh, it is our first week, so let's get, let's get through this story. First Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. The Philistines gathered their forces for a war. Real quick, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to read through this together. We're going to stop and talk about it a little bit. But this is uh, the welcome to Grant Nixon mispronounces uh, Hebrew names. Uh, so anyway, so here we go. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sakah and Judah and camped between Sakah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill. And the Israelites are standing on another hill with the ravine between them. So let's stop real quick. So the Philistines have invaded uh, the Israelites' territory. They are in Judah. They do not belong there. Remember that, all right? We're gonna, that's going to come up later. Remember, they do not belong there. But they are on one hill. There's a valley in between them. There's a ravine in between them. And the Israelites are on another. They've lined up to face one another. And neither of them are moving. And, and why aren't they? Because in battle, what would they have to do? To, to, to advance towards the enemy, what would they have to do? They would have to take the lower ground. Now, I don't know a lot about battle other than what Call of Duty has taught me in Halo on Xbox, but I do know that that's a disadvantage to go into that valley, right? And so they're choosing, they're just standing there. They're kind of staring at each other. And check out here in verse 4. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was 9 feet 9 inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was a bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in a battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men, have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we'll be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall. Giant, right? 
Like that is an absolute giant. And then think about, not only is he physically impressive to look at, but think about his armor, okay? Think about that armor. It said that he has a hundred, the, the, the mail, the chain mail he wore, that was 125 pounds, right? That's just like some dude with me hanging on him, right? Like that's just, that's his armor, right? Like it, it's just this incredible armor. I mean, think about the javelin. The point of his javelin, the end of his spear is 15 pounds, right? Try to pick up 15 pounds and chunk it, right? This is this, is this dude's choice of weapon. It's absolutely nuts how big he is. And then he has a shield bearer in front of him who must have looked hilarious because I don't know how big Goliath's shield was, but even on a small scale, had to be as big as that guy was, right? And you just, like, you just see this moving shield. What is that? That shield has feet. So anyway, there's a guy there. And a shield bearer, they, they traditionally, they carried more weapons, so whatever Goliath else, like whatever his ninja throwing stars were or whatever, this guy's got those two, okay? So Goliath walks out, this incredibly scary champion, and he challenges the Israelites to a single combat uh, decision. He says, you know what? Let's not decide this by all of us dying out here on the battlefield. How about you send one to me. If I beat them, we win. If you, if you beat me, you win. And let's just see how that goes. And what is Saul and Israel's response? Saul, God's people's first human king. Here he is. We got Saul, big, strong man, big, brave warrior. What is his response? Their courage left them and they were afraid. And that was his response, terrified at this champion. Now look at verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephratite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war, and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shema, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. So David's the youngest of eight, all right, eight I have four kids, now I don't feel so weird about it. All right, there's eight, right? And then so his three oldest brothers are now serving with Saul. They said, you know what? We got the Philistines are invading our territory. We will go fight. And David's main responsibility at this point is tending the sheep. He goes back and forth, checking on his brothers, bringing supplies. But his main responsibility is back at home. So look at verse 16. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also, take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp. As the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry, Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. So every morning and evening for 40 days, Goliath would come out. They would stand there. They'd go out in their battle formations, and Goliath would come out and challenge Israel. For 40 days, every morning and evening, right? Good morning. It's, is it my alarm going off? No, it's Goliath taunting us again. And every night, that was their lullaby, right? Goliath taunting them again every single day. So Jesse says, you know what? I want you to go check on your brothers. Uh, so go, go out there. So that's what David does. David goes out to check on them. And the army is marching out every day. And they're just waiting and waiting and waiting, probably waiting on someone to act boldly. Let's look at verse 22. So David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster, ran to the battle line. When he had arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. 
when all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated, uh, they retreated from him terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for this man who kills a Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding this is what will be done for the man who kills him. So David checks on his brothers. He hears Goliath's challenge, and then he hears what everybody's saying. The king has made this promise. If anyone kills him, the king's going to make him very rich, give him his daughter, and then his family never has to pay taxes. So what's David thinking? All right, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this, right? He's mulling it over, right? Because what are the options? It's like, it's, it's, I could go and potentially die, but no more taxes. Or I could like live, be a coward, and still have to pay taxes. So like either way, he's probably like, he's going to choose, he's gonna go face to get out of paying taxes and get all of these riches or whatever. So he's kind of mulling it over. We'll look at verse 28. David's oldest brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men and he became angry with them. Why did you come down here? He asked. Who, do, who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to the others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. So his brother Eliab is absolutely annoyed with David being here. You know, like, and he's asking, look, we're the brave soldiers here. You just rolled up and now you're talking like you're actually going to do something about this giant. Like, would you get out? Would you, you little punk, would you get out of here, right? And maybe he's a little embarrassed too. His brother is showing a little bit more courage than he is, right? And he's been out there on the battlefield for 40 days, and here comes his little, his little brother coming in and going, like, well, I'll fight him, right? And so maybe he's a little embarrassed, but anyway, he's like, you need to get out of here. Well, David's still asking around. He's still asking people, okay, what's the offer again? How many taxes do I have to pay after Zero? Okay, for real? So he's asking all of these people about this, and it gets noticed. Look at verse 31. What David, when David, uh, excuse me, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant's been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I'd grab it by its fur, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For he has defiled, he's defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. So David says to Saul, I'll do it. And then we have one of the most ridiculous chapter, ridiculous paragraphs in the Bible ever. And we skip over it all the time. Did you hear what David's like, resume is for giant killing what did he say yeah i tend sheep and uh lions and bears show up and when they grab a sheep i don't run away i chase them down and then i pull my sheep back out of their mouth and if they dare turn against me and try to take the sheep back i just grab them by the fur and then i beat them to death and you go like wait a second wait a second, right? Like, I've always read this, and I've just kind of skipped past it. And I've just been like, yeah, David was a shepherd. Sometimes he had to fight, like, animals or whatever. No, listen to me. 
Lions and bears, you just add a tiger to that. That's an oh my combo right there that no one wants to face. So you've got lions and bears. A lion, hang on, I just want you to understand. We're in the parking lot today. A lion walks up and like bites off my side mirror. And, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And I'm like, oh, I, I'll be right back. You say right there, come here. Hey, lion, hey, that's mine. I got it back, don't even work. Did you, did you look at me? Hang on one second. I got to kill this lion now, right? Like, gah! Like, that's nuts. That is nuts. Like, David would chase down lions and bears and kill them. Like, with his bare hands. That is crazy. And so maybe in that moment, Saul goes, okay, all right. So this guy's, like, beating lions and tigers. Or tigers, sorry, excuse me. Wizard of Oz has ruined me. So anyway, this guy's beat lions and bears to death. Maybe he can do this. But what I love is that David's confidence doesn't come from his ability to kill lions or bears. What does he say? The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear. David's admitting every time I go out there and kill a lion, it's crazy. Every time I go out there, the fact that I am still together and in one piece and they are dead, that's the Lord doing that. The Lord does these incredible things through me all the time. So his confidence is where? It's in the Lord. And so Saul sees that. And so he said, you know what? Go, and may the Lord be with you. So what does Saul do? Verse 38. He does what he thinks he needs to do. Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he wasn't used to them. Can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. So Saul gets all of his kingly armor put on David, which he probably did for multiple reasons. One is probably the best armor. And, and remember, if David loses, Israel loses, right? At that point, Israel loses. They, they are now slaves of the Philistines. So he wants to give them the best chance. So give them the best armor. Well, who has the best armor? You would think the king would, right? So whatever, whatever that was, that, that name brand armor, he put on him, right? And so he tried to do it. And maybe he did it because also the king should have been the one out there, right? Like, who should have fought the Philistine? Saul should have. Saul should have. Saul should have stepped up and said, you defy the armies of the living God, I got you, right? So maybe he put his armor on him for that too. Hey, you know what? Maybe you need to carry this. If you're the one brave enough, you carry my armor in the battle. Whatever the reason was, he puts his armor on. David goes, nah, I'm good. This is too big. So then David grabs what he knows. He grabs his staff, and then he grabs um, his sling. Now, listen. It's still crazy what he did, okay? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put that down at all. It is absolutely bonkers that this little kid, like, ran out there and was like, I'm going to kill you now, right? Like, that's nuts. However, like, these weapons, they're not too unconventional. So he has his staff. Well, what does he use that staff before to do? He killed bears and lions, all right? So that's like, okay, so maybe this staff works. And then also he's got a sling, which is not an uncommon weapon to be used in the army at that time. There were probably people, there were probably soldiers lined up um, who, had, who had a sling in their, and were ready. They had stones, and they were ready. In fact, some of the stones that they would have used, uh, we went to, a, um, we went to the, the Great Passion Play. I think it's in Missouri or something. I, I don't really know. Um, I, I just know I was there. But while we were there, there was somebody doing a demonstration. They had a sling like David would have used, and it was incredible, the accuracy. It was absolutely unbelievable. Um, and so he would just, you know, we would pick a spot, right? We'd be like, that tree branch or whatever, and he would just, pew, right, and he would just knock it off. It was absolutely nuts, and the velocity looked crazy. Well, 
I looked up uh, some research they did on the speed of one of these stones that he would have he would have slung, and, and the the power of that stone. They said that it, it would be compare it. You could compare it to the stopping power of a forty five caliber bullet. Like it's a it's a big it's a good weapon. All right, like it's a good good weapon. You would stand at a distance, and if anybody see that movie Risen. I think it came out last, last year around Easter or whatever, that movie Risen. If, go see it. It's phenomenal. It's a great, great movie about this Roman soldier who's in charge of uh, trying to find the body of Jesus. It's really, really great. In the opening scene, there's a battle. Then they're battling these, these people, and as they're battling them, uh, some of them have slings up top, and they're slinging stones at the, uh, at the soldier. So it's a, it's a weapon, right? Now, again, it's still crazy. It's still crazy. But David chooses the weapons. He knows the, the ones that the Lord have given him. Now look at verse 41. The Philistine came closer and closer to David while the ship, with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. I know, I get it all the time. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistines called David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. Needless to say, Goliath is not impressed by David. But check this out. Here we go. The most baller trash talk you'll ever hear. You ready? Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You've defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I will strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. Oh right? I mean, imagine, like David, I don't know how tall he was at this point, right? But he's a boy, nine feet tall, right? So he's just saying, like, I'm going to cut your head off, man, right? Like, God's going to save us from you. It's absolutely crazy. So what happens? Verse 48, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. Again, can you imagine watching this? You're an Israelite, like you're standing there. No one wants to go near him. And here goes David just running as fast as he can towards this giant. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. That's not good. And he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. Then David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. So David wins. And the Philistines did not respond really well. They ran away. And look at verse 52, what happens. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, because of course he did. But he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I do not know, Abner replied. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Gross. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. So the Israelites go after the Philistines. Um, David, uh, the king is wondering, who is this family that now, like, They'll be a part of my family because I'm going to give my daughter to their son. And then also, uh, they will never pay taxes again. So who is this family I'm about to bless? And, and he finds out. It's an incredible narrative. I mean, it's an incredible narrative. This is up there with Indiana Jones and 
die hard. But anyway, like it's a, it's a great, great narrative. And, and over these next three weeks, we're going to pick out different characters from this story and, and see how they inspire us to live bold lives. And, and first up is Israel. I want us to look at Israel as a, as a central character, the, the Israelite army. Starting back at the top, when the Philistines invade and they're standing there, what does God want them to do? Like the Philistines are there, they're waiting for a fight, they're at the top of that valley, what does God want them to do? I think that he wants them to act boldly. I think that he wants them to go after them, attack them, drive them out. And here's why I think that. I think that, that if they had done that, if they had boldly entered into that valley and marched against the Philistine army with, with the Lord on their side, I think they would have had incredible victory. That's what would have been waiting for them, victory. They would have had the disadvantage of the valley, sure, but victory would have been waiting for them. And how do I know that? Because God had given that land to the Israelites. If you think about it, the Philistines don't belong there. They don't belong there. They don't. Against God's decree, they don't belong there. And you think about when uh, uh, Joshua, he spent seven years driving out all of the people uh, who weren't God's people from, God, from the, the promised land of God, and they had spent seven years settling it. I mean, they had even at one point, they had sent a message ahead to the Canaanites, hey, listen, we're Israel, um, God loves us, this is actually our land you're on, so if you could leave peaceably, that would be great, and they said, nah, we're good, this is our land, and so then God said, fine, if you go in and these Canaanites who are trying to stay and defy me, you wipe all of them out. Don't just drive them out. You kill all of them because they will influence you and they will hurt my, uh, they'll hurt my people. And so you drive all of them out. God took this, this, this gift he gave to his people very seriously and here is an invading nation. They should have been bold because God had given them this land. And, and I think that God called them to a bold action and God calls us to bold lives. I mean, can I just take one commandment? I just wanna take one commandment of God and let's kind of flesh that out and see how bold our lives would be if we did it. I'll pick one at random. How about this? Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not at random, I have it written down. But love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you think about, okay, well, well that, that doesn't sound too bold. Well, well, who's my neighbor, right? Well, someone asked Jesus, Jesus that one time, and he revealed to him what? It's everybody, even your enemies, even the ones who, who would hate you, even the ones who would try to harm you, that is your neighbor, and you're to love them. You love your enemy. That's a bold move. That's a bold move, loving your enemy. And then it says, not just love your enemy, but as yourself. I don't know about you, but I'm going to take a guess that you love you as much as I love me, and I love me a lot, right? And I bet you love you, and I bet you take care of you like I take care of me. And it says you need to love your neighbor that way, even your enemy that way. Using 1 Corinthians 13 is just kind of a, a metric there. We have to be patient with the worst people we know. We have to be kind with the rudest person you know. We have to be considerate when it doesn't benefit us at all. We have to be happy for people when they get an advantage that we don't get. We need to carry people's burdens. We need to not jump to negative conclusions about people, but instead give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. That's a bold life. Because that's a life that can't ignore the hurts of others around them. That's a life that doesn't fight back, but instead fights for people. That is a bold, bold life. And God has called us to that. And God calls us to do bold things all the time as we follow him. And my guess is there are people in this room right now, you know that there's something that God wants you to do. You know what it is. I don't know what it is. But you know what it is. And it is bold. It is a bold, scary thing to do, but you know God wants you to do it. 
Because God calls us to a bold life. And here's the deal. If you live the bold life that God has for you, if you make those bold decisions and bold obedience, if you live it, then you know what's waiting for you? The same thing that would have been waiting for the Israelites. Incredible victory and incredible reward. I mean, again, taking that, that one commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Tell me from experience, what have you found to be true when you've loved your neighbor as yourself? I know that for me, when God has allowed me to get over myself and to love my neighbor as myself, that God's rewarded me. He's rewarded me greatly. There's great victories to be won in relationships in that way. He's, he will reward you. I mean, protects us from natural consequences of our selfishness and blessings on top of blessings. To live boldly the life God has for you will result in one thing, and that is incredible victory and incredible reward. And David said it in 1 Samuel 26. He said, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. If you are faithful to live boldly, to do that bold thing he wants you to do, God has great reward and great victory waiting for you. If he's calling you to boldness, to boldly stand for him or to boldly love the unlovable or to boldly entertain or enter into the mess of someone else's life to help carry, them, carry their burden or to boldly turn the other cheek or to boldly trust him when nothing makes sense, then what's waiting for you is victory and reward. Well, why didn't Israelites do the bold thing then? If there's victory waiting for them, incredible reward waiting for them, why didn't they march into that valley? Why in the world didn't they make the bold choice? And it's simple. It's one word. It's fear. It's fear. In front of them, all they saw was a valley of fear, filled with fear. I mean, think about it. This valley represented a terrible military strategy. Giving up the high ground, going into the low ground. If you look at the art of war, it says, therefore, the art of employing troops is that when the enemy occupies high ground, do not confront him. With his back resting on hills, do not oppose him. The Israelites would have gone against any common sense of war and strategy by giving up the high ground and entering into the valley. They're afraid. And that valley, not only is it a bad military strategy, it has a giant in it. Okay, like I don't know. I don't know if I'm looking down at a valley and I'm going, hey, that valley doesn't have giants in it. That valley has a giant in it. I think I'm going to go with the giantless valley. That's a big selling point, all right? That's the one you put on the marquee. Come to our new valley. There are no giants in it, all right? So there is this scary giant in there. There's someone who is bigger than them, who is better than them, right? Like somebody whose stat sheet is a lot more impressive. But fear kept the Israelites from getting great victory. And this is the main point I want to make today that I hope sinks into your brain. I hope the Lord uh, uh, makes it make sense for you. When we let a valley of fear keep us from living boldly, we miss great reward and great victory. When we let a valley of fear keep us from living the bold life that God has called us to live and make the bold decisions that God wants us to make, then we miss great reward and great victory. I bet there are people in this room that God has incredible victory for you today over maybe some sin you've struggled with or, 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 or some obstacle in your path. But what's keeping you from that victory is that there is a bold move, a bold trust, a bold action that he wants you to take that you aren't taking. And so you can't have that. There's some great reward that God wants to give us that is on the other end of bold obedience. And our life is filled with incredible fears. It's filled with valley of fear. So how do we overcome that valley of fear and choose to live bold lives and experience that incredible reward and victory? Here we go. 
one, go to God. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry or be anxious about anything, but what? Go to God. Go to God in prayer. So when you're afraid, go to the Father. And when I say go to the Father, I, I want to say this too, don't be embarrassed. Go to God, but don't be embarrassed. Sometimes I think I, I, I can't go to him. I'm too scared. Like, that's how I'm going to go to God. Hey, God, that thing you want me to do, I'm super scared right now, right? Like, that's, that's embarrassing. I, I don't want to do that. Well, check the scripture out, Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He knows the temptation to be afraid. He knows it. He knows it intimately. He was there. He knows it. And so instead of him looking at us and going, I don't know what's wrong with you. There's something really messed up with you. Why don't you just trust me more? No, instead of that, he says, you come to me with those fears, and I'll help you. So don't be embarrassed. And the, and the second thing is, I want you to name your fear specifically. Name your fear specifically when you go to God. Abstract fears have infinite size, and they have infinite power. When you're afraid, everything's scary, Right? When you're in that, you ever been in your house and all the lights are off and you're just, you just, you're kind of tense and you're scared. Every sound that goes off, you just, <laughs> everything is absolutely scary. Why? Because you don't really know what you're afraid of. But, 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 so it has this incredible infinite power. I want you to name your fear specifically. Shrink it down. Let it be precise. Because you can't deal with a problem that you can't name. So that's the second sub point that should be up there. Don't be embarrassed. Name your fear specifically. And thirdly, Bring a specific request to God. Bring a specific request to God. What I'm talking about is, is the vague prayers that sometimes we pray. We're, we're afraid, we're going through something difficult, and we do a, and we've all done it. God, help me with this. God, bless this person. God, this is a bad situation. Help that person. Usually, why do we pray those vague prayers? Because we're usually faithless. We don't, we don't really expect God to do anything, but we do the, we do the prayer thing anyway, right? Like, God, hey, uh, I prayed for this person, so help her with this. No, they're, they're usually faithless, and therefore they're powerless, and they do little to connect us to the peace of God. Because even if he answers your prayer, even if he comes through, how can you be sure that he heard you? How can you be sure that he's answering your prayer? Your prayer didn't make any sense. Your prayer wasn't specific. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times where your prayers won't make sense. That's the beauty of our God. The Holy Spirit makes sense of our groanings. There are times where I don't have words, and I come before God honestly, and I say, I don't have words. I just hurt, or this is bad, and I'm scared, whatever it is. But I think oftentimes, we can bring a specific request to God. And so I'm going to ask you to do that. Name your fear specifically to God, and then ask him for something specific. God, I want, I'm, a, I'm afraid of this happening God, would you shield me from that? Would you help me, give me confidence in the middle of this difficulty? Whatever it is, make a specific request. And the second thing, so go to God. Secondly, go to God's faithfulness in the past. Remember God's faithfulness before to you. You think about the Israelites. Did they remember God's faithfulness to them when they're standing there on that ridge? Because they have one giant in front of them, one giant who defies the armies of the living God. When the people first tried to move into the promised land and they sent spies, what did they come back and report? Lots of giants. A city filled with giants. And what did God do to that city? He brought it down through marching and trumpets, right? He brought it down 
through sound. He brought it down. It didn't even make sense how he brought it down. Joshua goes in, and God says, march around this giant fortified city, this Fort Knox, that's filled with big, big, scary people, and I will give you the city. And Joshua goes, cool, cool, cool. So they like walk around this place, right? Blow the horns, right? And it falls down. God said, I've got, there's a city filled with giants, and I'll give it to you. And he did it before. And now there's one little old giant standing in a valley, and they're going, no, we can't, we can't. I think they forgot. I think they needed to remember that. I think David remembered. I think that's why he said the battle is the Lord's, because he remembered the Lord fighting for them in the past. So remember God's faithfulness to you. And the third thing, go to God's promises. You've named your fear. Now name the promises of God. That'll help deflate that fear. I mean, remember that the battle is the Lord's. And that's a promise. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God will do the work through you. He's calling you to do something bold. He's calling you to bold obedience. God will provide for you to be able to be faithful with that. He'll equip you and enable you to turn the other cheek. He will equip you and enable you to bear the burdens of someone else. He will equip you and enable you to disciple that person you need to disciple. He'll equip you and enable you to be incredibly generous. He'll equip you and enable you to do that bold thing that he's calling you to do. So remember his promises. Remember that the battle is the Lord's. That's a promise of God. The fourth thing and last thing, go to God's people. We all have those valley moments where we're standing there and it's a valley filled with fear and you are frozen. You're just absolutely frozen, can't move. I have a friend of mine who's terrified of heights, and it's one of my favorite things about him. And so anytime I can get him into someplace high, I try to. Like when the pyramid opened, and then that sky deck, I was like, well, I know where I'm taking him immediately. And so we go, and it's like 20 bucks to just ride up there and look at it, and I was like, I'll pay 40. And so anyway, we go up there, and he sees it, and he just doesn't move. And I'm like, well, we have to move. Like, there's a line of people, like, we have to move. And he's like, uh-uh, uh We've all had those moments. Don't worry. He overcame his fear. He went out there and, um, and, and cried like a little girl, but it was fine, and we hugged, and it made us closer. But anyway, so think about, it, like, we all have those moments where there's something God wants us to do, but there's a valley of fear in between us and that bold action, and we're just frozen. In that moment, we need one another. We need one another's, uh, uh, the example of other people's faith to stir us up. Think about it. What happened to the Israelites when they saw David's faith exercised right there in front of them? They saw God be faithful to David. What did they do? Yeah, and they chased down into that valley. Did they still have any advantage by going into that valley? No, that was still a bold move. To go into that valley right there, the, the Philistines could have still fought them, but instead they chased after them. What emboldened them? They saw someone else's faith. I wonder, like, in those moments, should we not isolate ourselves? In those moments of being afraid, should we be around God's people and allow their faith to inspire us? There are oftentimes I'm talking to friends of mine or I'm, out, I'm around other believers and I'm hearing their stories of how God is faithful to them. And it didn't happen to me, but I'm walking away with a deeper faith. You ever experienced that? So I think sometimes we need to go to God's people in those moments and let him inspire us in that way. Um, and so... Go to God. Go to God's faithfulness in the past. Go to God's promises and go to God's people. Um, I, I want us to pray. We're, we're going to take communion in a minute, but I want us to pray along these lines. Would you, would you bow your head and, and close your eyes? We've been called to live bold lives following Jesus. Are you living that bold life?
Think about it. Be introspective. Think about your own life. Are you living a bold life? What bold action is God asking you to take today? What is it? Is there somebody that he wants you to reach out to? Is there somebody he wants you to be humble and to go after them, to heal a relationship or to share with them how valuable they are or how loved they are or to share with them the love of God? What's the bold action he wants you to take? Is it, a, is it an extreme action to remove a temptation from your life? What is it? What is the bold action that God wants you to take? Is there a valley of fear in front of you keeping you from that incredible reward and victory? I bet there is. So right now, we're sitting in our seats. I want you to choose boldness by boldly going to God. Go to God right now. Talk to him right now. Name your fear. Name it before God. Be honest with him. He won't judge you. He won't, he won't laugh at you. He won't be angry with you. It, what does the scripture say? You'll find help. So he'll help you. Name your fear to the Lord. Whatever it is. I'm afraid I'll be rejected. I'm afraid I'll be made fun of. I'm afraid that, that, that I won't have this or I won't have that. Lord, I'm, I'm just afraid. Name your fear. Now ask him specifically to move on your behalf. Ask him to specifically to do something with that fear you just named. No vague prayers here today. No general happy Jesus thought prayers here today. It's time to be real with him. Pray specifically, God, I, I want this from you. God, my prayer this morning is that we would trust you. We would trust you enough that when we're called to bold action, to these bold lives you've called us to live, that God, when we look down on that valley of fear, we would be like David. And we would remember that the battle is the Lord's. God, for my brothers and sisters who just named their fear to you and boldly asked for your rescue, for your response, I pray peace for them. pray that you would give them that peace that doesn't make any sense, that's beyond our comprehension and our understanding. That they would walk out of here boldly. That's what your word says. Your word says in Corinthians that because of the hope we have, we now live boldly. We know you're for us. We know you're moving with us and for us, through us. So that's what I pray for my brothers and sisters. Peace. Peace. As they boldly obey you today. Lord, we love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we get to celebrate communion this morning together. And as we do that, this is an opportunity for us to celebrate the boldness of our God who came and lived this this perfect, sinless life, took our sin on himself on the cross, died, body broken, blood poured out for us to take the wrath of God for our sin on himself. And so this morning, um, as, we, as we remember this, uh, I'm going to ask you before we dismiss you by row, we'll dismiss you by row, you'll come up, take the bread, dip it in the juice, eat it, and return to your seat. But before, before you do that, I'm asking you to just take a moment between you and God, no one else is, is listening in, right? It's just between you and God. Just take that moment and, and, and just think of
this truth that his body was broken, his blood was poured out for you. Maybe you need to repent, then repent. Maybe you need to just uh, uh, sit there with the weight of that. Just sit there then. Um, But we do this as a connection um, to our Lord Jesus, who literally gave us this sacrament. We didn't make this up. This didn't come from some pastor. This didn't come from some church tradition. Jesus gave us this sacrament. So we celebrate that today. So when we dismiss you by row, if if you um, don't want to take communion today or, or can't take communion for whatever reason, then you stay in your seat. That's fine. You don't have to come. But if you're ready to take communion this morning, we're going to call you up. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the work that you've done on the cross. Thank you so much that it's your body broken, your blood poured out so that we can live this morning. Uh, I pray that this communion um, honors you. I pray that everything that we do here today as we celebrate your love for us uh, would uh, put a smile on your face. So we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll start with the front row and just continue to follow um, each row after.